Thank you, Seth and Ben, for leading us in worship this morning, for reminding us of the truth of our risen Savior, who we, here, who we are here to celebrate this morning. Uh, welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name is DJ. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, and this morning, it's going to be my privilege to open God's word for us, lead us in our study of it as we examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the truth upon which all the foundation of the faith is built. So I invite you this morning, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41, uh, and reading this account of the original Christian sermon, the first Christian sermon that was ever preached in Acts, 20, in Acts 2, 22 through 41. Uh, if you're here this morning and you did not get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that has some space to take notes, it has the text, an outline of the sermon, uh, you can slip your hand up and we'll make sure that somebody from the back uh, gets one of those down here to you. Uh, so that will help you as you follow along. Acts 2, 22 through 41. There's just something about an original, Right? There's just something unique and stirring about when somebody does something for the first time, the first type of something. Uh, and it makes me think of all sorts of different things. It makes me think of maybe a story that was original. The, the, you read a book, you see a movie, and you think, man, I've never, never heard a story quite like that before. It's different. It's new. It's innovative. Maybe it makes me think of of a piece of art or of design or of fashion that's striking, that, that's new, that you've never seen before, that makes you think and consider something in, a, in an entirely new way. It, when I think of an original, I think of all those different things. But mostly, I just think of Chick-fil-A, <laughs> who proudly proclaims that they are the home of the original chicken sandwich, right? So when, when I think about a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A, it's simple, isn't it? The original is, is simple. I've eaten a lot of chicken sandwiches in my life, which you can probably tell by looking at me. That would be a safe <laughs> assumption on your part. I've eaten chicken clubs. I've eaten chicken Parmesan sandwiches. I've eaten chicken salad sandwiches. I've even eaten a chicken and waffle sandwich. And a lot of them have been really, really good. And compared to them, a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich seems really basic. It's not immediately impressive, right? There, there's not a lot to it. Chicken, bun, pickles. Add mayo if you want to, and you probably do. Yet it tastes amazing, right? I mean, right now, I feel a little bit guilty because I'm planting the seed in your brain, and you can't go get one today because it's Sunday. But you want a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich just hearing me talk about it because it's an original, <laughs> right? An original takes and does something simple, and it does it really, really well. And so other people want to emulate it, and they might riff on it and make something uh, that, that builds on top of that foundation, but yet the original always retains its charm. And that's why this morning, on a day when we celebrate the most foundational truth of the faith, we are going to look at the original Christian sermon. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons preached through the years. You, you might have two. Maybe you're thinking, unfortunately, I'm about to add one more to that list, and hopefully it won't be too painful today, because I've heard some amazing sermons, I've heard some terrible sermons, and I've heard some of my sermons somewhere in between. <laughs> and when we open up Acts, we see something that is striking in its simplicity, right? We're going to see a scared screw-up named Peter preach the first Christian sermon in history to a confused and skeptical audience. And there is a power in the simplicity of what he says that is impossible to deny. And so 
As we reflect on Christ's resurrection, let's boil the faith down to its most basic essence. Let's look at the original message and let's hear how can we be transformed by it today? Are you here as a committed follower of Jesus Christ? Are you here as a curious skeptic or somewhere in between? Wherever you're at, there is much to discover, there is much to reflect on, and ultimately there is much to be changed by in this text because there's something about an original. So join me in reading Acts 2, verses 22 through 41, where the Apostle Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's God's word for us this morning. Pray with me as we continue to study it. Our God and our risen Savior, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, which dwells among your children. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. 
So this morning, we're going to break down Peter's sermon, and we're going to see what, what does he tell us? What does he tell us is the significance? What does he tell us we're to do with this, right? Back to basics. What's the original? What's the very heart of the Christian message? And so as we dive into this sermon, one of the first things we need to notice is that we're stumbling upon this story mid-scene, right? We're we're walking in about halfway through chapter 2, and the story is already up and going. So some context would be helpful, right? What's going on here? Where are we walking in? Well, Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. We'll we'll talk more about all that later. And of his 12 disciples, Judas the traitor is dead, and the remaining 11 have chosen a man named Matthias to take his place and bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So right now, as we walk into our story, it has been nine days since the ascension, and it's been seven weeks since the resurrection. So place that time frame in your mind. If, if, if today were the day, then that would mean that the resurrection was sometime in early February. Think of what you were doing for Valentine's Day back up a week before that. That's about how much time it's been since Christ was raised. And these disciples have, have been changed, right? They're no longer the 11 scared guys that Jesus found after his resurrection huddled in a locked upper room because they were afraid of the people. Now, they've begun to be transformed, but even at that, they're not yet the guys, they've not yet been sent out into the world with the gospel message. So we're, we're meeting these disciples in mid-transformation, right? They've left their fear behind, but they've not yet gone out with this bold new mission. And today, as we meet them in this text, Jesus promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit that God would come and make his dwelling in them, that promise has been fulfilled. And so they go out into Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's a religious festival for the Jews. And so that means that people from all over the world have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you have people from, from nations all over, some Jews, some Gentiles who have come to worship God. They all have come and met and gathered in Jerusalem. And so the apostles have gone out And this crowd has gathered and they start talking about what God has done in raising Jesus. And each person who is gathered hears the apostles speaking in their own language. Right? You have people gathered from from Asia Minor. You have people gathered from what's present-day Iraq and Syria and Kuwait. You have people gathered from Rome. You have people gathered from Greece. All over the empire, people have come. And each one, as the disciples speak, they hear it in their own language. And so you can imagine this causes quite a commotion. People are thinking, this is remarkable. Like, how, how are we all hearing this guy in our own language? And these words that are saying, so, so people are, are marveling. Some of the crowd who is skeptical thinks, everybody's just drunk, right? They, they brush them off as, yeah, these, these guys are drunk. And so Peter gets up and he says, all right, all right, l- listen up, listen up. Everybody's not drunk, Like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. There's one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's still 9 in the morning, right? They might have had a couple mimosas, but we're not that far down the road. These people are not drunk as you suppose. But Peter says, this is a fulfillment of the promise that God made through the prophet Joel. That in the last days when Christ comes, I will fill the people with my spirit. Your men and women, your old men and women will will dream dreams. Your young men and women will have visions. And I will speak through my people. Peter says, this is what's happening right now. And so at this point, we enter the story. Peter has gotten the crowd's attention. He's cleared up the the confusion that, that this is just the end of a drunken bender. And now he has everybody listening. 
So what is he going to say? What's the message that he delivers? Well, he leads with the reality of the resurrection. That's the first thing I want to point out to us this morning. He leads with the reality of the resurrection. He leads with simple facts. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, which you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So I want you to think about the assertions that he makes here. One, Jesus was a man who lived and did amazing works among them. The amazing works attesting to the fact that he's more than just a man, that he was sent from God. And he says, this is a fact that was commonly known by the crowd he's addressing, right? Which you yourselves know. He's like, I'm not, I'm not giving you any newsflash that you're not already aware of. So that's fact number one. Jesus was a man. He came, he lived, he did amazing works. Fact number two, the people of Jerusalem crucified and killed him in their wickedness a fact that was completely within the plan and purposes of God, right? So Jesus was a man, he came, he did mighty works, and you killed him. And, and that was all somehow part of God's miraculous plan from before time began. And then fact three, God raised him from the dead and says, indeed, it would have been impossible for death to maintain a hold on him. Now, it's worth teasing out the implication here. It's possible for death to maintain a hold on a man, right? That's kind of what happens, to everybody who dies, they stay dead. And so if it was impossible for death to maintain a hold on Jesus, then the implication is that Jesus was more than just a mere man. So do you notice something about these assertions? They're claims about actual, factual, historical events. Jesus was a man, he did these things, he died, and then he rose from the dead. Right? They either happened or they didn't. You can believe them or you cannot believe them, but, but they're claims about history. They're accessible, right? You can investigate and find out if they're true. He's not making up stories about religious visions or dreams or anything like that. He's saying, this stuff happened right in front of you. This is the message. Think about it this way. What if I get up here this morning and I tell you that you should worship, say, a flying purple elephant named Bubba? you're going to have questions, a lot of questions. And one of the questions is going to be, why? And what if I tell you, well, I had a dream last night and I saw Bubba in my dream and he said so, so we should all worship him. Well, then you're just going to have to either take my word for it or not, right? You can't get into my head. You can't see my vision. You can't dream my dream. You, you got nothing to go on to know if the flying purple elephant named Bubba actually exists. But what if I tell you, that we should all worship the flying purple elephant named Bubba because I saw Bubba on the side of I-71 at mile marker 13 where he just pulled a dead guy out of a burning car and brought him back to life and then he told the 50 onlookers that were gathered around him about the true nature of reality. Well, that's a little different. You, you still might not believe me, but if you want to know whether it's true or not, you've got a place to start. You can go down to I-71 at mile marker 13 and see if there's scorched ground from a burning car. You can find the other 50 people who I say were there and ask them, did, did this actually happen? You can corroborate our stories. You can line it up. You can get on Twitter and see if anybody took a video of it. You've got a way to investigate to find out 
if these claims are actually true. Christianity is built on historical claims. When I say that Jesus is raised from the dead, you could say, well, that sounds as stupid and ridiculous as this idea that we should worship the flying purple elephant named Bubba. But it's a historical claim. It's a claim that's grounded in space-time reality. It either happened or it didn't. And the Bible invites us to investigate that. In fact, more than that, the Bible invites us to base our entire assessment of Christianity on whether or not it actually happened. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you catch the, the, the argumentation there? If Jesus is dead and our hope in Christ is purely about this life, then we're a joke. Then it's worthless. It's meaningless. The invitation is investigate. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, then he's God. If he didn't, then quit wasting your time on Sunday mornings. This is the, what the Bible calls us to investigate. Sh show me another religion that does this. Show me a truth, an event in, in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., that says if this didn't happen, the whole thing is false and invites you to openly investigate it. Show me. I've studied religions around the world. I've never seen this before. If you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, the first thing you need to know about Christianity is that it's not an invitation to blind faith. It's grounded in events that actually happen. Eyewitnesses recorded them. They passed them down more reliably than any historical document from antiquity to us today. You can deny these events. Many people do. But I'm asking you this morning, have you ever actually investigated? Have you ever considered the evidence? Have you ever considered the historical record? Have you ever come up with an alternate explanation that makes sense of what we know? Have you ever considered that the tomb was empty? People don't argue that. Because if the tomb wasn't empty, when this Christianity thing got, got started, the Romans, the Jews, they wanted to put it down. It was a threat. And the easiest way to put it down, if the tomb wasn't empty, would be to go to the grave and say, like if I stood here this morning and I said, Colonel Sanders is raised from the dead. And it's an amazing thing. Well, all you would have to do is go down to Cave Hill Cemetery, find the gravestone and say, no, no, no. I mean, if you're really conspiracy-minded, we could even dig up the body and do DNA testing and all that stuff. If the, if the tomb wasn't empty, then the story's over. Have you ever come up with an explanation for that? The post-resurrection appearances that the, the apostles and over 500 others at the same time say, we saw him. And Paul, in his writings to the Corinthians, says that most of those people who saw him with their own eyes after he was raised are still alive. The implication, you can go and knock on their door and ask them. Go investigate. Don't take my word for it. Talk to the people who saw him. Have you ever come up with an explanation for that? With these people who saw the risen Christ? What about the fact that these disciples endured torture, imprisonment, and death for the Jesus that they were convinced was actually resurrected? Of these 11 guys, 10 of them were martyred, died horrible, horrible deaths, all of them holding fast to that proclamation to the end. 
The one guy who didn't die a horrible death was not for lack of trying. John was beaten. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. He lived out the last of his days on an island prison camp. And all of them, to the end, proclaimed, he's alive. He's alive. We saw it. We saw him. Chuck Colson was an aide to President Richard Nixon. President Richard Nixon, and he was uh, implicated in the Watergate scandal. Colson was one of the guys that helped cover up Watergate, and when it came to life, he was, he was charged, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to prison. And in prison, he met Jesus Christ, and he came to know him, and eventually became a great evangelist and teacher of the faith. Listen to what Colson said. He said, Watergate convinced me the resurrection is true. Listen to how he put it. Quote, I know the resurrection is a fact, And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? absolutely impossible. Have you come face to face with the reality of the resurrection? Affirm, deny, do what you will. But have you investigated? Have you, have you realized this is a claim about reality? Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and, and you've come to, to grips with that and you love it and you celebrate it. And maybe you're facing problems today that are all too real. Sickness, death, broken relationships, addiction, betrayal, anxiety, depression, a hard job, a difficult home life. You need to be reminded that the God and Savior you worship is also very real and is able to deal with your very real problems. Christianity, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky foolish optimism where we just put on a smile and hope everything's going to turn out okay. This is a hope that comes from a great high priest, Jesus, who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses and your hurts because he actually experienced them. He actually walked this earth and lived this life and died that death and rose from the dead. That's where your hope lies. So Christian, you need to be reminded of the reality of the resurrection. And so Peter, having established the basis of the resurrection in reality, he goes on to tie the message of Jesus into the story of his audience's past. And he begins to talk to us about the promise of the resurrection. That's our second point, the promise of the resurrection. See, Peter says this Jesus thing wasn't just plucked out of thin air. It's the culmination of a plan that God has been promising ever since the beginning of time. And so he goes back in verse 25, and he quotes David. David is a man who the people that he's preaching to probably would have esteemed as maybe the second greatest Israelite who ever lived. Probably after Moses, there's David. David was was the great king of Israel. He was a king, he was a warrior, he was a poet. He was the man who God himself called a man after my own heart. So David's, David's up there. David's kind of a big deal to the Israelites. Now, he wasn't perfect, He even had a murder and an adultery on his rap sheet. But when he sinned, he repented hard. He sought grace and received it from God. And he was granted a place in Israel's history and a promise in Israel's history that was remarkable. And so in verse 25, 
Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He says, For David says concerning him, and he quotes the psalm, I saw the Lord always before me. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness within your presence. And Peter's going to zero in on one line in particular where David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this text would have probably been familiar to some of the people on the street listening. They would have heard this psalm read in Sabbath worship. They would have known this was the word of God. This was something David said. Peter says to them, this long familiar promise that you know is actually a promise of Jesus' resurrection. It's a promise of his coming. It's a promise of his victory. After all, Peter says, it's not about David himself. It can't be because David is dead. I would have loved to hear how Peter delivered this line in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Like, to me, I hear this as, I don't know a lot of things, but I know David's dead. Like We can all agree on that one, right? I can take you to his tomb. And so Peter says, this line about you will not abandon my soul to Hades, you won't let your Holy One see corruption, it can't be about David because David died. David went in the ground. David's flesh did see corruption. It's rotting in a grave right now. So so what does this mean? Well, Peter points out David had received a promise from God, a promise that he would have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was a descendant of David. One of the first pieces in the gospel message is these genealogies that we get bored with and we just skip right over, but they're there to establish Jesus was an actual historical descendant of King David. He's an heir of David's promise, and he is the one who will sit on the throne forever. And so Peter says that this promise that is made in the psalm is about Jesus. He will rule forever as king of all creation. That's what Jesus, or that's what David was speaking about. God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter says, we saw it, we witnessed it, and now God has poured out his his spirit on his people. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So in other words, he says, this scene before your eyes this morning is the culmination of the plan of God. That, that scripture that you go to, the, to synagogue every Saturday and hear preached at Sabbath service, it's about now. This is part of that story. And he quotes David again. This time he quotes Psalm 110.1, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? This invitation for the Lord to sit at the right hand of God in ruling power. And he says... David never experienced this. Verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says this. It's about Jesus. Jesus is part of a bigger story. Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. He's the better and greater ruler that the Old Testament has been foreshadowing, that it's been speaking of, that it's been pointing to. And Peter could have referred to a whole lot of other passages, right? 
He could have referenced Genesis 3 that promised that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. He could have referenced Moses, the deliverer sent to lead his people out of bondage and into the dwelling place God promised to them. He could have referenced Isaiah's promise of God's servant who would suffer in order to bring healing and forgiveness to his people. He could have referenced any number of Old Testament scriptures because history is full of the promise of Jesus' redemption. When you read the Old Testament, that's what it's about. God created the world, we broke it. And God has unleashed a plan where he will bring about redemption. He's making everything new, including us. That's the story of the Old Testament scriptures. That's the story that the Jews gathered would have been familiar with. And that's the story that we know. Whether you're familiar with the Bible or whether you've never read it before in your life, you know the world is broken. Everyone understands this. Find me one person who says, hey, the world's perfect. Everything is exactly as it should be. We put those people in institutions because they're nuts. The world is broken. Everybody knows it, and every religion has a solution for how to deal with it. That's what religion is. That's what philosophy does. How do you fix what's broken? God is perfect, right? And, and we're not. We live in a world that's a mess. So how do we get from A to B? Well, Islam calls you to submit yourself to God and put more good deeds on the scale than bad deeds and hope that the scale tips your way at the end. Buddhism says the reason that the world is broken is because of desires. You have desires. The desires don't get fulfilled, and so that brings suffering. And so Buddhism says, release yourself from desires. Achieve Zen. Achieve this this point of, of nirvana, of being separate, of letting go from all these desires and elevated, separate from the world. In fact, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to be absorbed into cosmic annihilation and no longer exist, to be in the one. Atheism says there's no God, so just do the best you can with the time you've got and try to make the world a better place. And then you're going to die, but it really will still matter because reasons? everybody's got a reason. Everybody's got an idea of how do we deal with the problem of brokenness. Christianity offers something different. It offers something unique. It says the brokenness is my fault. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. God is perfect. We've rebelled against him. You've heard of the Ten Commandments? How are you doing with those? You might think, pretty good, like haven't killed anybody this week. No, no, really, how are you doing with those? Read them this afternoon. Get back to me. And even the ones that are the easy ones that I haven't killed anybody this week, remember what Jesus said. If anyone's hated his brother in his heart, he's already committed murder inside. Anyone's lusted after a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery inside. We fall short. We fall short of God's perfection. And God says that unless we keep all of his commands with flawless perfection, we will never sniff his kingdom. And so the righteous judge, the object of my rebellion and scorn, came down to be with us, to live alongside us, to suffer the depths of our wickedness, depravity, and pain in order to give forgiveness and life to all who put their trust in him. That's what the message of Christianity is. That's the promise. Peter says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Lord and Christ is the Jesus who was crucified. The God we worship is the God who suffered and died. And the God who is alive forevermore and offers his bounty to the world. 
He has won the victory. He has purchased this world by his blood and he offers it freely to all who come. Think of it. Think about what is promised here. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. Think of the worst thing you've ever thought. The thing that makes you want to vomit just thinking about what if somebody knew that that went through my head. Think of the guilt and the shame and the mess that comes with that. Jesus, the perfect creator of the universe, said, I'll take that. I'll take it. I'll own it. And and not just your mess, not just your guilt, not just your shame. Think of the mess of the worst sinners you can possibly imagine. Murderers, thieves, rapists, abusers. He bore it all. He took it all. He became it all so that he could bring peace to us. He died taking the fury of God's perfect wrath and absorbing every last ounce. He took the cup of judgment and he drank hell dry. This is what the promise of Christ's death and resurrection is. Jesus was a guy who died, but he wasn't just a guy who died. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his creation. And because he was perfect, though he was gathered up in death, death could not hold him. And so he came forth from the grave. That is the promise of the resurrection. This is going somewhere. History is heading to a place that is only possible because God has dealt with my junk, with my mess, with my sin, with my evil, with my wickedness, and he did it through Jesus Christ. That's the promise. And hearing this message, the crowd was cut to the heart. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what what shall we do? And it's here that we see the response to the resurrection. Right? They understood the significance of what Peter was telling them. They understood that this was a historical claim and that it was rooted in the grand story of history, of God's work and his plan. But they also understood that it demanded something of them. It demanded something of them. They can't just sit here and say, cool story, bro. See you after lunch. It did something. It cut them to the heart. Have you ever asked that question? So what, what do I do? Is Christianity just an intellectual curiosity to you? Is it something just to sit back over that Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich and, and shoot wise about and talk and, whoa, that's cool, that's a neat concept? Is Christianity just an emotional shot of adrenaline that helps you get through the problems of life, right? When, when you're feeling down, you just need a little Jesus so that you can have a pick-me-up and he's kind of like a glorified cat video. Now I feel better. Have you ever come to the place where you realize This message demands something of you. It's not a a spectator sport. It's not something you can sit on the sideline and just take in. These people believed the message, right? They had faith. They were cut to the heart. They realized this is true. I believe. So what do I do? Now what? And Peter says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. They must repent and they must be baptized. So note first up, 
This isn't something that, that Peter just came up with. He didn't just make this up on the spot. He gives this command in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying this command comes from Jesus. It's his authority. It's his power that commands this. Remember Christ's last words to the disciples in the Great Commission, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus told us to go and do. So what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? It means to change one's mind, to turn around, to forsake and leave behind one's sin, right? If, if you say, I'm, I want to repent of my sin, that means I realize that this is wrong. I don't want it anymore. If sin is that way, I want to go this way. You're making a turn. You're making a choice to forsake that which put Jesus on the cross, because remember, Peter said to them way back in the beginning that they were complicit in Jesus' death. Right? This Jesus, you crucified at the hands of lawless men. So if they're going to embrace and follow Jesus, they have a guilt that they must acknowledge and leave behind and forsake. But you might say, well, maybe they were complicit, but, but I'm not. I wasn't there. You weren't there. But that's not true. It was... My sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Peter, in his letter that he writes to the churches later on, 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, he says it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's writing that text not to people who were there. He's writing that text to people who were far off and says, your sin put him there. We, our sins, were born in his body on the tree. Christ suffered and died because of me. And so if I'm going to come to him, I have to reckon with this mountain of guilt. It was my sin that held him there. And so we're called to repent, to leave it behind, to walk away, and in the power of the Spirit, start a new path. Repent and be baptized. So what is baptism? Well, baptism is a public declaration of the faith that we have embraced. That's the model that Jesus puts forth, is that when we believe, when we trust in Christ, we are baptized as an expression of that to the outside world. It's a way to identify with Jesus. He died, was buried, and was raised to new life. And symbolically in baptism, so am I. I identify with Jesus, and I identify with God's people. I'm baptized not just into myself, but into a family, into the people of God. Don't fall prey to the lie that says that faith is this personal, private thing that you can just hold on to, and it doesn't affect anybody but you. Jesus calls his followers to identify with him. And with the people that he's gathering to himself, that's why we meet on Sundays like this. That's why this is of eternal significance, because we are identifying together with the risen Christ and following after him. Repent and be baptized. That's the call to them. That's the call to you today. If you've never followed Christ and you find yourself cut to the heart right now, repent and be baptized. And what do you get? The forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Nobody's perfect, right? It's a cliche. We all know it. But if God is perfect, and the Bible says he is, 
perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly good. If he's perfect and you're not, the most pressing need you have, the most pressing need you have is to have your imperfection dealt with, to have it taken away. Otherwise, how will you dwell with him? Oil and water don't mix. How will you come near to Jesus? You need forgiveness and Jesus came to accomplish that. That's the message of Christianity. And forgiveness isn't cheap. It's not God just ignoring what you did. It's not pretending it didn't happen, sweeping it under the rug. Let's just give give it another try, take a mulligan. To have that idea of forgiveness makes a mockery of justice. Sin is significant. Sin hurts people. Sin kills people. Sin is an offense to God who made us. And so sin has a cost. And forgiveness must take that cost. And what God has done in forgiving us in the person of Christ is he said, I will bear that cost. I'll be the one to hold the debt. I'll be the one to take the wound. I will take the cost upon myself and so you don't have to pay it. That's forgiveness. That's what Jesus offers. Trust in me and go free from the penalty that you've been storing up for yourself in your rejection and your rebellion of God. And with that forgiveness, the gulf that exists, the oil and water don't mix gulf between me and between God is healed. Because the forgiveness of your sins is promised and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will dwell with you. That's been the longing of the Bible ever since Adam and Eve went south in the garden. When God created them, they walked with God. They enjoyed fellowship near and close and intimate with God. And then sin broke it. They were cast out. And ever since, humanity has been longing to return, longing to have that fellowship, longing to dwell with God again. And the promise now is because what Jesus has done, you won't just dwell with God. God will not just dwell with you. He dwells in you. He makes his home within your heart, within your soul, as close as your next breath. Receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in us. What a promise. What a truth. Do you long for this? Does your soul ache for it to be united with your creator, to know the one who made you and the one for whom you were made? That's the promise that's extended through the resurrection. But maybe you think, it's not for me. That that promise can't be for me. I'm too far gone. That thought you asked me about earlier, that, that, that you said the one that nobody knows, you don't know. If you knew, there's no way you'd say that was for me. There's no way Christ can deal with that. There's no way he can take me. I'm too far gone. I'm too far off. I'm too broken to be made whole. You're wrong. What does he say? Verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. This promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The invitation is from God, it's to everyone, and it is this, come to me. Jesus has flung the door open. Come to me. Receive forgiveness, receive healing, receive wholeness again. Come to me. This is the essence of the Christian message. 
This is the heart of the original Christian sermon. Come back to God, for Christ is alive, and in doing so, he has made a way for you. And Peter continued to talk. He continued to exhort them with more words, just like I am today, right? Acts 2.40 is really the life verse of preachers everywhere. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. And sometimes that many other words feels a little bit more many than others. But he told them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So today I ask you, will you save yourself from this crooked generation? (laughs) And that sounds kind of old-timey, doesn't it? Crooked generation. But the truth is as relevant as anything could ever be. Because we know the world's broken. We know the world's crooked. And we can see that hope is offered. Come and count yourself among the 3,000 that were added on that day. 3,000 that has grown into billions from every tribe, tongue, and nation being knit together into a kingdom of priests to reign with Jesus Christ forever. Come, join that family. Be found in him. Lay aside your sin, lay aside your mess, leave it. There's no hope, there's no help. There's no joy to be found there, you know it. Deep down we all do. Come, come to the one who lived among you, the one who was crucified and killed and the one who rose from the dead because death could not hold him. Have you ever considered these facts before? Have you ever pondered the promises and considered the grand story into which they fit? And have you ever been cut to the heart and compelled to respond? I say to you this morning, whether you've heard the message a hundred times This is number one. Repent, believe, and live. Find hope. The well's never going to run dry. Come this morning to Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God and Father, words fail us when confronted with this when presented with the reality of who you are and what you have done. Nothing we can say paints the picture bright enough. Nothing we can say lifts your name high enough. Nothing we can say exalts you to the degree to which you deserve. But Father, be glorified in us. Thank you for sending Jesus into our world, into space-time reality to live and die and rise for me. Thank you that he bore my sin, my rebellion, my evil, my imperfection. He took it for me out of a great love with which he loved me and everyone else in this room. God, presented with that Jesus, may we stand in awe. May we be cut to the heart. And Father, may we respond. May we repent. May we be baptized. May we believe in this Jesus and embrace him.
God, I pray for all the souls who sit here this morning. Some have never heard this before. God, I pray that you would cut them to the heart, that they would repent, that they would believe. And Father, some who know this message, who know this tale, who know this story, God, may we hear it for the first time all over again. May the original make what is dull become fresh, become new to our hearts. And may it enliven us to worship with everything that we are with every part of our lives. And God, as you knit together this people at Trinity Church, may we glorify the risen Jesus and proclaim him to a world that still needs to hear this simple message so that they can come alive. God, be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.